going to continue in our series on the Pentecostal Handbook. We're, we're getting into Acts chapter 15. We're going to learn about the Jerusalem Council, that as God is saving the Gentile peoples through the ministry of Paul and Barnabas and others, we're going to find there's a controversy, that there's some old-fashioned types that say, hey, these Gentiles need to do it our way, uh, particularly in the Jewish way, and there's going to be the first major controversy of the church. And we're going to see how the elders of the church got together, looked in the scriptures, got wisdom from the Holy Ghost, and decided on a ruling that we could all live by and live in freedom in Jesus and, and not by the law. Let's welcome our pastor and visionary leader, Joe Irostic. Man, let's open up to Acts chapter 15 and get it on. Okay, so my brother really gave a great summary there. I think that's exactly what we need to know as we look at this passage. And uh, here's how I put it today in the notes. Today in the Pentecostal handbook, we will learn how the early church dealt with the first major doctrinal conflict, Jewish legalism and works-based salvation versus salvation by faith alone. By God's grace, the leadership trusted the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and the Christian faith was preserved, clarified, and spread out to even more people. What's amazing about this is that we are still having to confront this today. I literally have a debate this Thursday scheduled with a group that teaches you must keep the Jewish laws to be saved. You must keep circumcision to be saved. It is an old lie that continually makes its rounds through the church. So this is very applicable to today. You will meet people in groups like this. Some of them will have sound doctrine and everything else except this. And then some of them will have doctrine all over the place, and this is just one of the symptoms. Seventh-day Adventists, being known for that because of uh, restoring the Sabbath, the seventh day, in their, in their terminology, to the day of worship, has been one of the groups that actually started off as a cult and I believe has moved into Orthodox Christianity and just happens to emphasize the law. But be careful with them nonetheless because they still do have cultic tendencies to draw you into their group, to put legalism in your mind. But they would be an example of one that has kind of veered more towards mainstream Christianity Christianity has gone along, thankfully, praise God. And that's just not my word. That's Walton, Dr. Walter Martin's word, who did an extensive study on it in his book, Kingdom of the Cults. And you guys can get that. He's now passed away. But he was actually one of the founders of the cult uh, movement, uh, studying the cults, apologetics, rather, the apologetic movement in the modern church. Let's look to Acts chapter 15, verse 1. Certain people came down from Judah, or Judea rather, to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Now let's see if you guys are paying attention to geography references and maybe have the same confusion that I had. What sounds confusing here if you've been paying attention to the geography? Well, there is two Antiochs. That's very good. That could be confusing, so I grant that to you. But there's a confusing statement here, very specific, that caused me about 10 minutes of research just even preparing for this. Came down. Exactly. Which direction is normally down, north or south? South. Okay, so you would be going south. But which direction is Antioch from Judea? North. So what's going on here? 
Does Luke, the historian, not know whether it's north or south? You know what I had to do? I had to search commentaries that even cared about the question because, you see, now I'm trying to learn geography. And I'm like, come on, help me out here, scholars. I care about this. Why don't you guys tell me what this means? So scholar after scholar, finally I got it. Judah, Jerusalem, was on a mountain. There you go. So you got it. And they came down to then go north, up. But you see, if you start caring about this, it can be confusion if you don't take your time to understand the geography. But in that day, would they have understood? Of course, they would have got it. They're coming down from a mountain region to wherever they have to go, and that's the lingo they use. Now, what's most important there, obviously, is that these people come from the Jerusalem, Judea area, and now they're teaching that unless you're circumcised, as taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This is adding to the work of the cross. Jesus says it is finished. They're saying, no, it's not. Uh-uh, you still got stuff to do. Verse 2, this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So right here, for any Judaizer today in the church, after the New Testament is written, you have to be dull spiritually. You have to be really deceived by a demonic spirit or dull spiritually, ignorant. It says here, Paul and Barnabas disagree with them. How can you ever twist Paul into believing this? The whole entire council is initiated by Paul going into these outer regions, winning the Gentiles, and people coming to argue with his Gentile believers about them being circumcised. And he takes the right side, and he comes against them. That should settle the issue. And if by the end of the chapter you have not read it and it settled the issue, I really mean this in a loving way. You're a spiritual nincompoop. You really are. You're a fool. How do you not get the understanding of the context? We could show this to an atheist, a Muslim, to anybody who had no dog in the fight and just say, read a passage in our scriptures and ask, uh, answer the question, do Christians need to be circumcised to be saved according to this passage? Did Paul believe that? Did Barnabas believe that? Did James believe that? Did um, Peter believe that? But yet, like I have to go this week by God's grace in love, uh, I have to go and debate that. And I pray for spiritual nincompoops to repent. I pray for the fool to repent. How many pity the fool? We should in some way have a compassion for them, but enough love to tell them the truth, to say this is folly. Now you may say name calling is not biblical, but when we get today to Paul's letter in Galatians, he uses a little bit of name calling, doesn't he? Jesus used a little bit of name calling. Serpents, snakes, vipers, whitewashed tombs. Mine's what? Spiritual nincompoops, a spiritual nincompoop. And that just shows the folly of their position. I'm not being mean-spirited. I just want them to know they're a fool. They are a fool to believe this. This will cost them their soul. We ought to care about it. Amen? This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. So obviously, they want the backing of Jerusalem to the side that they already believe. I believe Galatians has already been written, and we will get to it today, Lord willing. I believe it's already been written. So now what Paul is doing is saying, I'm going to settle this for your sake once and for all with the elders and the apostles from the place you came from. I'm going to settle it there so you can see I'm teaching what they are teaching. 
And that's why, once again, I believe Galatians came first because there was a lot of lining up that had to happen first with Paul and the apostles. He had to make a few trips there, and on one of them he had to correct Peter. But by the time here of the, uh, the Council of Jerusalem, which this is going to be known as, it's a council, it's a gathering, and it's in Jerusalem to settle this issue, Peter is fully on his side. There, there wouldn't have been a rebuke to Peter in this event. I don't see it there. And so some believe this came afterwards, and so Paul, even here in this event, had to correct Peter, and then him and Peter got on the same page over the time that the council was going on, because it could have been a few days. And I just don't see that. Peter just comes in so strong. Him and Paul are on the same page. I just see those conflicts of, of Galatians happening earlier. Now, I want you to see here that the governmental structure is now transforming. It is now morphing. We started off just with the apostles, then they add the deacons. Now they add, uh, in the, chapters, uh, the chapter prior, they add the elders. Now you can see it's apostles and elders. And what's eventually going to happen, like we see in 1 Peter chapter 5, is all apostolic authority will be given to the elders. As we discussed yesterday in the fivefold ministry, this does not mean that apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers have an expiration date. It's just that now these gifts find their place in the office of elder and deacon. But who were these unique apostles at this time that are separated from the elders? They are the followers of Christ and his ministry and appointed by him personally. I have to say that because we know Paul was not in the ministry of Jesus for those three and a half years, but he was appointed by him personally. Also, probably his brother James was, his half-brother in Jude, and that's why we're going to see that Jude has apostolic authority. But what we're going to now know is that the elders have the same kind of authority, and they even have the same kinds of giftings. There will be elders that are apostles going out to start churches. There will be elders that are prophets. There will be elders that are evangelists and pastors and teachers. But now their main title of leadership is not going to be known as apostle. What they're now going to be known as, the leaders in the churches, they're going to be known as elders. And just like the deacons serve the apostles, the deacons will now serve the elders. Does everybody see that? Because the deacons were actually the first one to be developed by the apostles. And then now the apostles start appointing elders, and then the elders will take that role over, and then it will be elders and deacons. So when the last apostle dies, that office of a unique apostle of being with Jesus and or appointed by Jesus will die off. How do I know they are a unique office? Because in the kingdom to come, they rule on 12 thrones. That is that unique office. Their names will be written on the foundation stones of New Jerusalem. Now there will be future apostles that will be raised up, but they'll be known as elder apostles and so forth. Just like there were prophets in the Old Testament, the prophets now will be known as elders in the New Testament. Uh, they're not going to have just the office of an apostle, as what we would say, or an office of a prophet, and there's not going to be the office of a priest. The Roman Catholics made up that office. There will only be now two main positions in the church, elder and deacon. 
And the reason why we use the word elder and not the word bishop or overseer is because the word elder is the primary word used in the book of Acts, like we see right here. But there is one spot in the New Testament where elder is not used in a primary place, where bishop is used, and that is in 1 Timothy 3. So we know that it's an important title, but then in Titus, it's, it's now interchanged with the word elder. In Titus chapter 1, it says the... Uh, the elder must be this, the elder must be this, and the overseer, the bishop, will be this. And it's talking about the same exact person. It doesn't switch to another uh, position. So we'll use the primary word that the New Testament used, which is elder. Can I hear an amen? So that's a church government issue. Number three, the church sent them on their way, and as they traveled throughout Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. That's how I know everybody's on the side of Paul and Barnabas. This is not an issue. The only one this is an issue for are for the Pharisees that are on the brink of heresy causing a division. It's, it's not a problem for Paul and Barnabas. They already know the answer. This is not a problem for Peter. He already knows the answer. It's not a problem for these believers in these regions. They already know the answer. It's already obvious to James and to others. What we are going to see is it now has to be dealt with in a disciplinary way. And I can even think about this as an overseer of this church, an elder here, is that oftentimes you guys know my heart. You know an issue with us in the eldership. It's already settled. But you may be having a debate on Facebook with somebody, a discussion, and you're going through the motions of trying to teach them. At some point, if they become unteachable, what do you do? You do the Matthew 18. You say, now listen, I need you to come with me and speak to one of our elders here. They will tell you this is exactly what we believe here. Now, when I come into that conversation on your behalf and I make that decision, let's say it's abortion or homosexuality, some popular issue, and I make that decision, have I decided at that moment, my belief, my stance on that issue? No, I've already believed that issue. I've already been teaching on that. It's just I have to make the stance clear now for them. And maybe I should now put it in writing. Maybe I should distribute that. For example, we only put on our website the stance that Metro Praise has with abortion and homosexuality just a few years ago. But that has always been the stance of this church. Does that make sense? So what you're going to see now is they come, they're going to make a decision, they're going to set forth a plan, but that doesn't mean they're coming together to decide whether or not this is the issue. No, they already know the issue. It's like them coming before the Council of Nicaea. They're not coming to decide if Jesus is God or so forth. They're coming to describe the belief they have in Jesus as God and the Trinity of our God. That's what, you're, that's what you need to realize with these councils. So when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. This is Paul and Barnabas initiating this council saying, hey, let's straighten it out because the people that have been coming from here have been telling our people they need to be circumcised. Let's go back to the source of our leadership here and let's get the right answer. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. Now notice this. This is none of the apostles, none of the elders are saying that. It's some of the believers. So this is a differentiation between the leadership of the church. Does everybody get that? 
So I just want to reiterate this one more time. Let's say Joe B. is having a disagreement with one of our believers in the church about an abortion issue. He's going back and forth. He is trying his best to explain it. He then says, let me now bring you before the elders. You can say what you think, and then they will tell you their decision on your specific questions. When they hand out their decision, that does not mean they made it the first time there. They are now just responding to your specific issue, and now they're going to tell you what they have always believed according to that issue. We always believe abortion is a sin. It is murder in the eyes of God. Amen? Point settled. So these believers say, we have to teach the Gentiles to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. Verse 6, the apostles and the elders met to consider this question. Are they meeting to consider it because they don't know the answer? Are they meeting because they're somehow confused that up until this point they've been teaching that? No, that's not why they're meeting. What they're meaning to do is to decide how do we, call, how do we make a decision that doesn't split the church? How do we help these people who are wrong understand the grace of God? What can we do for them so they don't split off? Do you get this? It's not like, oh my goodness, there's so many good points on each side. Ah, do we cast lots? I mean, we can't figure this out. We're confused. That's not what's going on. Paul and Barnabas already knew the answer. Peter already knew the answer. James and the apostles already knew the answer. What they're considering, what they're doing, is trying to make a decision for these people in writing, a settling of the issue that then can be dispersed to the churches around them, to the Gentile Christians who are soon to outnumber them and then forever will. More Gentiles than Jews now in the church, obviously. So after much discussion... Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know, this is something you already know. You know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. See, you already know this. This happened years ago. You remember this. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did us. Now, if you go to Acts 10, 44 through 45, you see what happened in Cornelius' house. Now, there's a lot of discussion about the timeline of Peter in this understanding. But we know for sure that this settled the issue for him. There was no more discussion. There was no more debate in his mind. This was settled, and we know it's years prior. Does everybody get that? Do you see why I say it takes a, spirit, a certain kind of spiritual nincompoop to go against this ruling? This is literally in rebellion to our apostles. I literally am now going to go to a cult and say, you are rebelling against our apostles. Kind of makes me feel special in that sense. I'm like Paul bringing you the letter. This is what it says. What are you doing? And I'm going to use some of the language Paul uses in just a minute as we get to Galatians. But here, Peter, it's obvious. Verse 9, he did not discriminate between, between us and them, for he purified their hearts by what? Faith. He purified their hearts by faith. Did it have anything to do with their circumcision? No. Did it have anything to do with them keeping the law? Absolutely not. Their hearts were purified by faith. Is there any confusion to how Peter believes your heart is purified? Your heart is purified by faith. Now, verse 10. 
Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? Right here, Peter bears the same heart of Paul that describes the impossibility of being declared righteous by the law. Now at this point, a Judaizer will try to say, when God first gave the law, did he not say you were able to keep it? It wasn't so far out of your reach in heaven that you had to try to go up to keep it, that it was right here, nigh even in your mouth, that you now could speak the law and know the law, you could teach it to each other? Yes. And did he not say that you were to perfectly abide by it and that there would be blessings upon you? Yes. But did they do it? No. So the point is, after hundreds of years of doing what God said they could do, they showed that they were not capable of doing it and that there must be even a greater thing coming. And so God was showing humanity that it's not because you can't live for me that you don't live for me. It's because your choice not to live for me brings forth judgment and you choose wrong all the time. So I'm going to go one step deeper and change your heart to enable you to obey me. Now, even in the great possibility, and they may point to people being blameless in the law, it still was because, as clarified later on, as the new covenant was being prophesied by Habakkuk and others, that the only way Daniel and others were blameless in the law is that when they did it by faith, the just, they lived by faith. So it was never outside of faith, but it was always by faith. But even then, their faith was weak, and they failed at it. And that's why when Jesus comes, he says, I've come to fulfill it, to be the perfect example of it, and to initiate a new covenant, which is better. There is a better covenant, and now this covenant eliminates all the excuses, though we shouldn't have had them in the old covenant, but it eliminates them and empowers us to do what it never could, the law never could. And that's why he says in Galatians that the law was like a tutor, but the new covenant is the spirit leading and guiding from within. It's a total different revelation. It's a totally different understanding. One is from the outside. One is from the inside. And so there is a better, and so the, the great big question would be, well, then why did God do it if only so few would ever get it? Because he wanted to show us the depravity of man. He wanted to show us the impossibility of it. He wanted to show us Romans chapter 7, that even when we know it, we still don't choose to do it. And, we, and even at that point, we still can't even blame our sinful nature and just say the sinful nature made us do it. We choose on our own to do it to follow our own sinful body. But who, as Paul said in Romans 7, who will deliver us from this body of death? Who takes away our condemnation? Thanks be to God, Christ Jesus. He takes away the condemnation, delivers us from the body of death, renews our spirit, and makes us born again. That's why Jesus talked to Nicodemus saying, you have to be born again. This is the way now you'll enter the kingdom of God. Not just a few righteous people who figured it out and could do it, but all of us can have this default position of being righteous with God. And that's why it says Jesus became what we were, that we might become what he is. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Are you getting it? And is that the same message of Paul? Absolutely. People try to bring Peter and Paul against each other all the time. I just heard in an Islam, a Muslim debate, they're trying to bring James against Paul. Paul preaches salvation by faith. James preaches salvation by faith plus works. That is not at all what's being taught here. James, in the midst of this, is hearing this and totally agrees with this. James doesn't teach a works-based salvation. 
And by the way, as I looked more at the timeline, some people put James's book before Galatians, and that may be true. And then some people think it's James and, and Paul going against each other. Uh, here, here Paul is saying we're saved by faith alone, and James is saying, no, you're a fool. If you only have faith and you don't have works, you're really not saved. What good does that do you? But no, why would they be disagreeing with each other when here they're in an absolute agreement? Their epistles are not disagreeing. Their epistles are an exact complement to each other. Paul is saying to the Gentiles, you don't need anything in the law to be saved. This is how you are saved. And then, and then uh, James is clarifying to the church, we're not saying you go off, keep, you have faith and you keep sinning. Your faith has a work to it that is displayed in a righteous life. And Paul in future letters, when he had the opportunity to describe this like he does in Romans and as he does in Ephesians, he absolutely pulls it all together as he writes more. We are saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast, but we are the workmanship of God created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Romans chapter 4 and 5, we're not saved by our works, we're saved by faith alone, but then as he goes to Romans chapter 7, it shows the sinfulness of man, but 8, now we live by the Spirit. We have the mind of the Spirit. We don't give in to the mind of the flesh. And then in chapters 10 and 11, he goes on to teach the plan of God for all people to live obediently to God by faith. We come in through faith, out through unbelief, as he ends with Romans 11. Then in Romans 12, he talks once again that these are the works of our faith. Peter says their hearts were purified by faith. Verse 10. Now then, why do we try to test God by putting on their necks uh, a, a yoke, on the Gentiles, a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? How many of the Jewish people were righteous? How many were like Daniel? How many were like Jeremiah? Hardly any, only a few only a few thousand in the time of Elijah. So God says there's a better covenant coming. No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. Is anybody unclear now of what Peter believes? Peter gives one of the best sola de fidea in Latin only by faith messages in these few verses. It is perfectly clear what he believed. Verse 12. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling them about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. And we had just read about that in their first missionary trip in Acts 13 and 14. So you can almost see them working together, tag-teaming. They're on the same side. Here, Peter is preaching, using his authority from being one of the closest to Jesus. And then as they're silent, now Paul and Barnabas are talking about all of the, the missionary journeys that they've had, all the confirmation of the Holy Spirit. It wasn't just a one-time deal with Cornelius like with Peter. It's happening all over. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, I disagree with you. Let me tell you what I think now. I'm going to write an epistle totally disagreeing with this entire thing. No, brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this. Does he now say, I take Peter's vision as supreme authority? No, James sides with Peter because Peter is in line with the word of God. And the New Testament Christian's Bible was the Old Testament. And he now sees that this scripture is being fulfilled. 
It is written, after this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. So, see, Israel, it fell apart. They didn't keep the law. They blew it. They brought themselves into exile. That covenant failed upon their faith and actions. They didn't do it. It's in ruins, but I will rebuild it. I will restore it. That's why Jesus came to the Jews first. That the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. And we know the answer is our God. Amos 9, 11, and 12, and Isaiah 45, 21. Once again, don't you love how they combine two scriptures together? They understand it's all the word of God. As long as it's in context, the text can be used. And James, he sees this is the fulfillment even to Abraham, that through your seed, singular, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Where are they all going to become uh, converts to Judaism? No, even as Gentiles, they will be blessed in an Abrahamic seed, through that seed. Well, now how do we know that Jews and Gentiles are blessed? By Jesus Now, does this mean that Jews stop being Jews? No, they're going to be ethnic Jews until the time Christ returns because he has promises for them in the land that will be restored. But do they themselves have to continue in the law? No. After 70 AD, it's going to be even impossible to keep the majority of the law because the temple and the priesthood would be done away with. And those who say, well, we could do all the other little things. No, it's just, just leave it alone. Keep it in the Old Testament. Amen? And then they go, well, what about all these other laws? What about the laws of bestiality and all that? Well, those are all the moral laws reiterated by the apostles, and it's called the law of Christ. God brought into the New Testament his same character. Does he say now it's okay to rape, murder, and everything because Jesus is a loving God? No, it's still wrong to murder. It's still wrong to have sex outside of one man and one woman in marriage. So every other thing is a, 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 a perversion of the original version. Amen? It's obvious. So we look here, and we see that James is in total agreement, and not only that, but he sees it in the Scripture. Now watch what he says. It is my judgment. So now James is in charge. That's why this cannot be the Roman Catholic book. This must be a non-Catholic book, a Protestant handbook, because who's making the final call? Who makes the judgment, Peter? No, it's James. Now, once again, is this written as a modern-day biography with all the details so we know how this happened? No, we have no idea how this happened. But he's in charge now. Uh, The last thing we heard about him was that he was making fun of his brother, telling him to go to Jerusalem and basically show himself to be the Messiah there. That's the the only time we really heard of him, you know, a little bit in the book of uh, Galatians, if we talk about the timeline here. And, uh, you know, in the the book of Acts, he's there with them. But we don't know how all of a sudden this man is in charge. But God put him in charge. The other elders agreed to it. The apostles who were even with Jesus the whole three and a half years agreed to it. So it shows their humility. Peter was okay with him making the final judgment. So that that, would be all of our heart, amen, servant of all, that attitude. Whoever is most well-equipped to take us to that next level, let's follow them. If Jared is the best leader for the Metro Praise movement in the next 20 years, then I'll serve Jared. What difference does it make? Everything we have is given to us by God. Let us just serve each other and go out and do the work of the ministry. There's enough for all of us to do, amen? As long as we don't have the mentality as a big I, I'm so big and you're so small, big I's and little U's, God will use us. It's my judgment, verse 19, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. 
Is that what he just decided then or he already believed? He already believed it. But he's saying it now in an official way for everybody to hear so that there's no more confusion. He's like, hey, you guys, you Pharisees, you guys causing trouble, listen. It's my judgment. This is what we're doing now, and we're going to do it this way. It's my judgment, therefore, we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them. Here's what we should do to stop this confusion from spreading, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of the strangled animals, and from blood. And there was a reference to that in Genesis chapter 9, I believe verse 4, check for me, with what God had told Noah. This even predated the law, that you shouldn't eat meat like this. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. So what he says there is, here's the things that we'll tell them not to do so that they can be friends and hang out with the Jews and not cause the confusion. Is it 9-4? There it is. Genesis 9-4 is the reference to this. As a, pre, uh, as a pre-law, as a pre-Mosaic law to Noah and to his generation. And so I've heard, and let me give you the best explanation that I've heard from some people, is that what they say is this was the first step that they were supposed to take as Gentiles. Then they were supposed to go to these synagogues, learn the rest of the law, and then do it. Now, is that anywhere in here? Does that even make sense? So what we want you to do now is go to the Jews and go learn to be a Jew and contradict everything we just said beforehand that you're saved and purified by faith, that it's our judgment not to put more on you than that we couldn't even bear. I'm just going to ask you now to start trying to bear the law. I'm going to contradict myself. No, the whole reason why verse 21 is there is saying, wherever you are and there are Jews, this is how you're friends with them. This is how you can go preach to them about their Messiah because even a Gentile is commanded to go to the Jew first. Whenever you meet a Jew, you're supposed to go to them first. If you are on a train and there's a Jew and a Gentile, according to the Scripture, you have to talk to the Jew first. Now, we probably can do both at the same time, but if you were literally to take that command, the way it was meant to be, the Jew always comes first. Do you know the Scriptures? Do you know your Messiah has come? That is because they have suffered so much. That is because God has had so much compassion on them after all of these years, and we honor the Lord by going to them first. And so... That was just all that it was saying. In your city, in your town, in your place, go and do that. Now, we know that the Jewish people have heard the gospel now in America and other places, so we don't have to go run to a synagogue and go do this. But this is how we would do it in a city where they had not heard the gospel. We would go to them first, make sure they understand what we are saying. And by being in fellowship with them, we would probably want to do the thing, uh, not do the things that gross them out the most. What would gross them out the most is us eating blood from our family recipes, uh, doing things with food from idols, and then having sex with children, homosexual sex, or sex at temple prostitutes in the, with the temple, with the prostitutes in the temple. So let's stop grossing them out. Let's take our sexual purity serious, which is, by the way, still the number one issue I see people struggle with in the church is sexual purity. And the Jewish people took pride in being sexually pure. So for us, like, oh, I'll never go to a temple. But do you go to the pagan temple of pornography on the Internet? Come on, somebody. It's the same, it's the same perversion. It's just the same disgust. And so the idea is just don't eat this nasty stuff in front of them and stay sexually pure, and you can reach out to them. Now, does that make better sense? 
I mean, it's kind of what the letter says, isn't it? It's kind of what it goes on to do and teach and preach and all the other books. So uh, either A, we can come up with a doctrine that contradicts two verses prior and all the other books written in the New Testament and the whole entire purpose of Jesus and the prophecies of a new covenant. We, we, we can do that or we can explain verse 21 in the way I just showed. It was meant for them to be in relationship with the Jews and continue to preach and reach out to them. Then the apostles and the elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas called Barsabbas, that's a son of Sabas, and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. Now you see the word leader is there. Now that's probably synonymous again with an elder as well, just like you could call me a leader or an elder. So they were probably elders as well, men who were leaders among the believers. With them, they sent the following letter. Now, here is the letter. Now, see if there's any confusion here. The apostles and elders, your brothers. Now, notice, they have an office, but most importantly, their position is a brother. Right? So they're no big eyes, little use. I'm an apostle. I'm an elder. and You're, you're just a servant. No, no, no. No, I have, a, I have an office. Uh, there are people here who walked with the Lord Jesus who will sit on thrones and rule with him, and there are others that we have appointed as the teachers and the leaders of our church. But you know what? We're all just your brothers. We're all family with you. To the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, Sicilia, greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. See? Doesn't it now make perfect sense to what I was telling you before? They went out from us, but they didn't have our authorization. We weren't teaching that. We didn't tell them to do that. We've always been teaching this. They went out without our authority, and they disturbed you, troubled your minds. So we all agreed to send some men and to send them to you with our dear friends, Barnabas and Paul. So they're going to back it up here. Men who have risked their lives for the names, for the name rather, of, the, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth that what, what we are writing. Do you see it? So Paul and Barnabas now are going to go to these outer areas where the Gentiles have been getting saved. And they're not only going to come with a letter, they're going to come with some other leaders from the Jerusalem church going, anybody tells you other than this, you better anathemize, anathemize them. Cut them off from the church. They are lying to you. And I don't even care if they say they heard it from an angel or they name an apostle they heard it from. They are lying to you. This is the truth. That's how Galatians chapter 1 starts off, isn't it? It is good, verse 28, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. This is the whole entire outline, or rather the whole entire um, purpose of leadership. Things must be good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Obviously, the Holy Spirit can get grieved, so we have to know what is good for him, God with us, and then we must have a peace to submit to it and to be in unity with it. That is how decisions are made in the church, with the Holy Spirit and the elders, the leaders. That's how we make decisions. So it is a theocracy. As I went back and I was trying to figure out, uh, is there another governmental form that's similar to what we do in the church? No, because it's a theocracy. 
And it could be considered a monarchy in that sense because we are ruled by a king. This is it. By the Holy Spirit, we are ruled by. That's why we don't get the opportunity to vote uh, on whether or not we make leaders and all of those kinds of things. We don't have congregational vote. We let the Holy Spirit speaks to us, and then among the leaders, they make the decision. And it's not necessarily a vote. It's still a decision. It's good to get people's vote in the decision. But at the end of the day, we don't say the decision was made because the Holy Spirit said it and the majority of elders voted on it. No, we do it because the Holy Spirit said it, and it was good to all of us. So the decisions mostly in the church should be unanimous. Let's say it this way. They should be unanimous when they come to doctrine. Amen? I don't see a problem with, uh, uh, you know, situations coming up where you have to administrate things. And, hey, what do you guys think? Well, there's five here, four here. But the doctrines and the, the uh, protocols of the church must be unanimous, agreed upon. Because if you don't agree upon our protocol and what we're going to do here, like if you felt like I needed to add one more thing into that letter and you're going to cause trouble, you're not with us anymore. You have to settle that this is what is good. Because other people might have said, well, let's tell them to do this. Let's tell them to do this and, you know, whatever. As we're going to learn just in the next chapter, uh, you know, Paul's going to take Timothy with them and he's going to circumcise them. And it's almost going to seem like, what's the con- you know, what's going on? This is a contradiction, especially with the book of Galatians. He says, if you let yourself be circumcised, you might as well just cut your whole thing off. Emasculate yourself. That's Paul's talking, Right. But why does Paul do it? Paul does it because there's a synagogue in every Saturday where they teach the law of Moses. On uh, This is a synagogue in every city, and there's a, there's a synagogue there where they teach the law of Moses every Sabbath. He wants Timothy to be able to reach them, and he knows with reaching these real strict Jews that if he's not circumcised, they won't even sit and talk with them. He's not contradicting. He's just doing it as a missionary approach, nothing to do with salvation. So somebody might have wanted to add it in here and say, well, and if you really want to reach the Jews, do whatever you need to at times. Become a Jew to the Jew, a Gentile to the Gentile, you know, that kind of thing. But no, they said, let's leave that out. You know, I'm just using like an example. They had to agree just upon a few things. And my point is everybody needed to agree to that because if you felt there was needed to have more things in there, you're going against the church. Amen? And that's called subtle rebellion. And we don't want subtle rebellion in the church where it's like, well, I think this, is, this could have been done a little bit better and this and that. I'm not talking about pro, uh, uh, administrative things. I'm talking about the actual protocol or a doctrinal issue. Do not have that in your heart. Amen? Submit to God and to men, and he'll lead you. He'll take care of you. Things can come up and change over time. Churches don't always get it right, but that's how the decisions are made. So they didn't want to burden them with anything else other than these requirements. Verse 29, you are to abstain from food, sacrifice, Sacrifice to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. So if anybody says now to be saved, you have to be circumcised. They're a fool. They're a false teacher. They are liars. This says it right here. We are saved by faith alone because of God's grace alone through Christ alone. Amen? So the men were sent off and went down to Antioch. Once again, went down. But they're going up directionally, right? Where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, see, now we see there's prophets there. They're gifted with the gift of a prophet, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. After spending some time there, they were sent off by the believers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. Now here we see another uh, variant in the New Testament. This is found in the King James, and it says, Notwithstanding, verse 34, it pleased Silas to abide there still. Now, nothing there changes our doctrine. Nothing there is uh, um, conniving. Nothing there is conspiratorial. 
something to do with this event and this verse got lost in some manuscripts, preserved in others. Once again, we have a 110 puzzle piece, if anything, for a 100-piece puzzle, not 95 pieces for a 110 puzzle. Does everybody get that? There are things that are here that take nothing away, really add nothing to the issues that are considered variants. And where do I side? I always side with the King James. The more, I just say, it's always going to be good to accept that. It was the Bible of the church for many years, the majority text, the Latin Vulgate, then the modern King James in 1611, modern compared to the ancient times. And I trust that. that that's called the ecclesiastical approach instead of the eclectic approach where now in the 21st century we kind of try to decide all of these things i just trust the ancient church can i hear an amen this is not an issue to divide over you can trust the approach of modern scholars and say well you know verse 34 probably is more of an addition from a scribe at a later time okay well then you do that but for me personally i prefer that now i'm not a king james only person because you have to remember that king james is just a translation of the majority text, the Texas Receptus. There's many other versions that can come from that, even modern ones like uh, Dr. Brown helped with the MEV and so forth, uh, the New King James Version, et cetera. So I'm not a King James only person like the 1611 has to be it. And then at the same time, I don't hold to the uh, ecclesiastical understanding tightly. I'm always intrigued to listen to people who have the eclectic approach, and I'm always willing to change if I can be shown that I'm wrong. Uh, I, I used to be uh, just an ordinary person. I didn't care. Then uh, right around graduating, I became a King J uh, Bible College around 98, 99. I became King James only for about five years. And I never made that a, an issue. I never split churches because of that. I always hung around folks who weren't. It was just, just like I am now in a preference. It was a preference, okay? Uh, and I never told our people to rip up an NIV, not inspired version or whatever. And then I became eclectic until basically about maybe three or four years ago. And then I, and then I maybe even a little bit earlier than that, right around the time I was starting to defend the, lo the longer ending of Mark uh, during my time with uh, my master's degree, so maybe five years ago, six years ago. And I was just like, I feel more comfortable in my studies with understanding how the church preserved these, especially, like I said, through the Latin Vulgate, et cetera. And I was just like, that's where I'm going to go. And then about the last year and a half, two years, Sam Shimon and others have been posting up a lot of stuff. Now, he's a King James only person, but he doesn't separate on it. Uh, but I've, I found myself just more like uh, confirmed to believe what I was sensing in my heart was the comfortable position. I didn't like the King James attitude, only people, and I just didn't think it was right because it's an English translation of, of the scriptures, you know, of the, of the Greek. So uh, I, just, I just don't believe that. But uh, I really feel like this gives me a good understanding of it. And Dr. Douglas Wilson would be one that would kind of like settle more with where I'm at with the kind of approach there. Okay, and a lot of Reformed guys are this way as well, the ecclesiastical version. So you guys can pray on it, set your heart to seek the Lord for what he leads you to do. There's only one truth that we're going to figure out when we get to heaven, but I'm saying seek the Lord for where, where you're going to settle on the issue. Uh, verse 35, but Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch where they and many others taught and preached the word of God. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. So after they do this uh, kind of assignment from the Jerusalem church, now they say, let's go back over our, our first mission trip and basically take our second one. Verse 37, Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, who we know is the uh, uh, cousin of uh, Barnabas and the writer of the gospel of Mark, Paul, uh, Peter's assistant, wanted to take him with him, but uh, Paul did not think it was wise to take him. 
him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. And that was in Acts 13, 13, if you remember we mentioned that. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers, uh, commanded by the believers to the grace of, excuse me, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers, rather, to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cecilia, 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 strengthening the churches. Cilicia, Cilicia, thank you, Cilicia. Okay, so the disagreement here, uh, of course, man, if this was modern-day writing, it would be a tabloid. It would be all over Christianity Today, Charisma Magazine. Everybody would be on Facebook picking their side. This is probably one of the reasons why Paul was so against division. He saw where it led in 1 Corinthians, one's with Apollos, one's with Peter. Um, a lot of people have different opinions on this. You guys have heard mine. Let me just reiterate it. I believe that Paul was right. Barnabas should have submitted. There's always one in charge, and I believe that Paul was the one in charge. It probably was hard for Barnabas to submit to Paul because, remember, Barnabas was there before Paul in the church being a leader. He really helped Paul get accepted by the church. He probably thought of himself as more of a soft shoulder, uh, somebody that could encourage others. That's actually what his name means, son of encouragement. And he thought that he was doing that maybe better than uh, Paul. Maybe he thought that Paul had forgot that he had did that with him at one time, brought him into the church, and Paul just needed to slow down a little bit. That's the best case that I've heard brought against Paul. Paul. The problem with that is, is the book of Acts does not follow Barnabas, and it's the inspired book of the Lord. So God could have used Luke to retell the story of Barnabas here, but it's not. It's the story of Paul, and in the next chapter, uh, John Mark is replaced with Timothy, a spiritual son, who then has books named after him and is used to uh, pastor these great churches that they were over. I do not believe that such an oversight would be allowed by the Lord in Paul's life. He was a humble man. He was a teachable man. This is the problem that I have with a lot of teachers who try to read things into the Bible that are not there. They'll try to say this was part of the reason why he got his thorn in the flesh. He was a prideful man. He had disconnected relationships. That is a lie. There is no evidence of any of that. As a matter of fact, when he tells the story of his vision in the thorn in the flesh, he does so humbly. He shows nothing but grace and kindness as a minister. And it just seems to me that Barnabas did not take his place and come down harder on Mark, which it should have been for his own good. He could have joined them on the third missionary trip. Uh, people do this with Joseph, trying to say he was prideful, as I told you guys before. Joseph's one of my heroes of the Bible, and I just think it's foolish to make him a prideful man. There's not anything ever said of him to be prideful. He told his dreams to people that involved were in the dreams. He did it a right way. He did it with his parents' authority, with the other dreams and visions, and everything came to pass. And the part where he was wrong, uh, the Lord convicted him when he kept going on with his charade, and he felt that he shouldn't do that anymore, that, that he had, they had learned their lessons. But I don't even think it was wrong for him to pretend who he was somebody different at the beginning. He wanted to see a changed heart. And uh, Jesus did that. Jesus changed his appearance, walked with men on the road to Emmaus. So I see it in, as a biblical example as well. And uh, that's okay. So that doesn't bother me. There's no issue there. What is the problem? It's so simple. Why not just read it as it's, it's here? They come into a sharp disagreement. Paul continues on. So who's wrong? The guy who leaves Paul. What other way are you going to look at it? 
Okay, if you want to be conspiratorial and try to develop some leadership lesson out of this, which I know a lot of leadership guys, and Nancy comes to me in the master's class and tries to say, well, this one had an issue, and then this one, and then this one. And I'm like, Nancy, don't buy into any of that nonsense, you know. They try to read into these things, and they try to uh, get their name out there in some new book because they came up with some make-believe story. But don't believe it. Just read the story, and at the most, just say, we don't know. You don't know. Now, I would leave it at that if, like I said, it wasn't so many people actually on the other side. I'm in the minority position here. Where, yeah, where the majority of people that I've heard, let's just say my personal experience, anecdotally, anecdotally seeing this being presented is Paul was the wrong one. And I just don't believe that. Uh, but what we do see here is that uh, Mark has to be disciplined. And so now he doesn't get to travel with Paul anymore. But in a latter time in Mark's life, he's restored to fellowship with Paul, and God uses him in a mighty way. We found that was at the end of what, 2 Timothy? I, I, I was listening to this on the way here, and I said, I don't think I wrote it in there. Would you just get the actual reference so we can finish it out? Here is the timeline as a reminder of where we are at in the story. We have now uh, crossed over to around uh, 50 A.D. to the time of the Jerusalem Council. This timeline just happens to put Galatians where I would put it, so that's really cool. But since they uh, take the earlier thing, they might put uh, the book of James here as early as 40. But uh, if you take the latter uh, date of the book of James with the early potential of the book of Galatians, which is what I like to do, you still have Galatians coming before James. I would like to say they're probably right at that moment at the same time, but um, either way, it doesn't change anything. And then uh, now they're going to start their second missionary journey here in Acts chapter 15 and um, then begin to do their goodies. And I don't know why they have this Acts 18 up here before Galileo here thing sticking out. I think they wanted to make room to write it, but that's actually going to happen a lot later here. But uh, the second missionary journey. And on the second missionary journey is where a lot of these letters uh, start to get written. Uh, and, and they make a good argument for saying, well, now he's going to write to the Galatian people and say all of these things. But that would not make any sense because he's traveling to them now. He doesn't have to write the letter. It would only make sense if after he's left them on the first missionary journey that he writes that letter because of the confusion, gets it settled at the uh, Council of Jerusalem. And now moving forward, he has the Council of Jerusalem letter just to reiterate with his traveling companion Silas. The next thing that we want to look at is uh, this is what the second missionary journey is going to look like. So uh, the dotted line right here is uh, Paul and Mark, uh, excuse me, Barnabas and Mark going to Cyprus. Okay, well, let's just see once again, which one does the Lord bless with the work to do? Uh, there's Barnabas and Mark, and then here's Paul's journey, the blue line there, okay? So, I mean, I just like, who's the one the Lord says I'm going to bless in what you're doing there? Now, if I get to heaven and I'm wrong, then I'll, I'll repent, right? I mean, I'll be like, hey, I got this wrong, but uh, here now begins their journey. They're going to go the opposite way of what they went their first journey. Their first journey, they did go to Cyprus and go this way around to those places, and Derby was the stopping place, and that's where they recycled through, if you remember. But now they're going to go up and over, starting with the Derby, Iconian, Glacian area, and then push way past where they ever went before. So all of this right here, maybe it's just better if I use the mouse, all of this um, area right here, wherever my little mousey went, there she goes. All of this derby was the furthest that they went. So they were just in this area last time. Does everybody see this circle? Now they're going to go way over here 
the Thessalonica, that's where my family's from, Thessaloniki. They're, they're going to go here to the Bereans. They're going to go to Corinth and Athens, the heart of the Greek empire. You know, the Greeks taken over by Rome. Now Greece is taken over by Rome, but that's where they're going to meet all the philosophers, those who are carrying on that culture. That's when they go to Ephesus, which we're going through the sermon series now in the book of Ephesus. This is where he's going to spend the most amount of his time in all of his journeys, uh, then to this island here, and then all the way back down here to Jerusalem. And that's where... Um, He's going to end his journey in Acts chapter 18, verse 22. That's going to be the years from 49 to 52 A.D. Huh, I thought I was actually going to be able to read the book of Galatians. I have a New Testament timeline from ESV. They put Galatians a little bit later. That's only about the difference right there that you'll see. But uh, right here, uh, it's really cool. And if you have Logos Bible software, they have 17,000 points on their timeline, and then you can reduce it down to the points you need, like just for the Bible, just for the travels and all that. But uh, here is a summarized version, and uh, they put here uh, 48 for Galatians, and they put uh, 40, 45 for uh, the book of James, and you can just go through the rest of it right here. So I just gave that to you as a uh, little bit of land, yeah. So what we need to do as, uh, as Christians now in the New Testament church is we need to defend this doctrine of salvation by faith, right? Don't we need to do that? We need to defend it and continue on teaching it. And that is something, I mean, just the Lord sets things up, guys. I'm literally going to be defending it this Thursday in a debate. Isn't that something? Praise God for that. Uh, the, the passage, rather, the scripture here that I wanted to give you in Galatians that we do not have time to read the whole thing is found here in my notes, Galatians from Galatians chapter 3 all the way to chapter 5. Let me just summarize it here. Let me just give you the bookends, and let's see if you get it, okay? Just the bookends. Let's see if you get Paul's point. Galatians chapter 3, and then the last verse, we'll read Galatians 1. Uh, we'll read Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. And then Galatians 5, 11 and 12. And let's see if Paul is a person who teaches you have to get circumcised and keep the law to be saved. You ready? You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Let's read one more. Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? And let's go all the way down. All of this rebuke from Paul. And let's go to say, let's go to the last here, uh, verse 10 of chapter 5, last few verses, the bookends. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion, whoever that may be, will have to pay the penalty. Brothers and sisters, if I am preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. What do you think about that, Jackie? That's tough. That's called an apostolic rebuke. Now, you don't want to be on the side of that, do you? But even if you were, you would still love the apostle for it and say, thank you for sparing my soul. I would rather you offend my mind and save my soul, save my heart, than to tiptoe around it. Tell me what you really think, Paul. Tell me what you really think. This is what Paul really believed. This is what Paul taught. 
And this is in conformity with the apostles. This is not against what the apostles taught. Uh, the other elders, this was the whole point of the Jerusalem Council, was to confirm that Paul going out here to these outer regions was exactly the truth that Jesus had always taught. Amen? All right, so in closing today, let us be reminded of what he wrote in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. It's a much more gentler correction, or we say an exhortation, Paul speaking. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Did the Roman Catholic Church try to put us under a yoke of slavery? They did with all of their rules and regulations. Can't find them in the Bible, can you? Seventh-day Adventist with that false prophet, yes, yes, put us under the yoke of slavery. Jehovah Witnesses, put us under the yoke of slavery. Mormonism, can't drink caffeine, yoke of slavery. All these places putting us under the yoke of slavery. No, stand firm. Guard your freedom. Don't give it up. Stand for what God did for you. He doesn't want you to be a slave to things that men have taught. Follow the word of God. Amen? And that's why even at the end of Galatians, he says, if you want to know, just to make sure you check your heart along the way of living free from these bondages, if you want to, if you want to know if you're living right, look at your life. Are you living by the flesh or are you living by the spirit? And isn't it something out of almost all of these legalistic organizations, they always have the deeds of the flesh just lurking right in there. The deeds of greed and idolatry were in Jehovah Witnesses as he sold Charles Taze Russell's sold miracle weed and Judge B. Rutherford, the second founder, took all this money and built a home in California for the second return. But who lived in there until they came? And Mormonism and all the polygamy and gross relationships that Joseph Smith and Brigham Young had with children, pederasty, are you listening? And Islam, all of their rules, all of their regulations, but it's a yoke of slavery as they practice this pederasty and, and, and a po a polygamy and jihad and rape and murder of slaves. Are you listening? Is it any wonder, even these groups that we'll see today or see this week, the anger of their heart, their selfish ambition, the flesh, their jealousy, their envy. Are you listening? But it's the fruit of the Spirit that verifies the work of God. That's how you know you're keeping in step with the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, etc. Lord, we thank you for today. We ask that we will always live according to your word, that we'll live free so that we can set others free. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. Let's give it up for Jesus today, amen.